Hey, everybody. Welcome to the You Were Born for This podcast with Father John Ricardo. I'm your host, Father John. I'm the executive director at Acts 29, where we talk about anything and everything related to transforming the church. And we've got my bobblehead version of Nick here. And Mary, how you doing, sis? Uh, I'm, I'm good, Father. It's good to be with you today. And Is Nick, Nick on paternity leave? What's up with this? I thought he just had a baby. <laughs> God bless Nick. He's he's out with a cold today, he's feeling a bit under it. So yep. keep him in your prayers. Indeed, brother, we miss you and um, come back soon. We need you. So uh, that said, uh, Mary, what's the topic tonight? Oh, Father, we have a great topic today. It's um, it, um, we're calling it recovering what it means to be human. Hmm. You think there's a need for that? Oh my gosh, that's one of my favorite topics. Actually, going to follow up perfectly from what we did last week because we're talking about themes for Lent, right? We right. talked about how the, the key to transformation in the church, the single key, right, is yeah. transforming me. Like that's, that's, right. that's really the start. And so we suggested some things for Lent. And this is actually, without even thinking about this, this is going to dovetail nicely, I think, on that because this is another, we're talking about transformation. And one of the ways that we need to be transformed is. It's really kind of frightening, but we have to relearn how to be human yeah. right now, right? A lot of reasons for that. So, Father, before we dive in, how about you open us with prayer? Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for uh, this season that we're about to enter into this week. As we uh, ask for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon us, as we gaze upon Jesus and his self-offering on the cross, ponder anew all that he's done for us. And ask him to give us an abundance of your spirit so that we can grow in imitation of him. Lord, we want to be fully alive. So help us. Show us those areas in our lives where we're not, uh, where we're settling for existence as opposed to abundant life. Lord, we ask your anointing on our conversation that it would bear fruit in our lives and the ears and the lives of all those who are listening. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The name of the Father, Son. Holy Spirit. So let's just go back. So we're really trying to to return to the episode that we did a couple of weeks ago, right? Right. right. We were talking about the method of the master. Right. The method of the master. And this came from, uh, it was an insight that Nick had coming back from working with the diocese. And he was just explaining how one of the things that we think is somewhat unique to the work that we're doing, because uh, we do a lot of quote unquote coaching, although we don't like that word, is uh, we're not standing apart from the people that we're working with, kind of facilitating them. We're actually at the table with them, wanting to be part of the team with them as they're growing closer together as brothers and sisters in trust, in vulnerability, right? And so it was just emphasizing the whole importance of the table. And as he was sharing that, uh, the line that jumped out uh, in our prayer and our our thought was Paul's words in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, uh, verse 8, I believe, where he says, you know, we were, we were eager to share with you not only the gospel, but ourselves as well, huh? Our lives. Yeah, that, I think that uh, resonated with all of us. And, and, and we know that when we're sharing our very selves, our entire person, not holding anything back, that requires... Um, a lot of vulnerability, a lot of vulnerability, and, and intimacy. And as we were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, we heard from quite a bit of people. Like this struck a chord. Yeah, sure did. In folks as they listened to our conversation. I think because so many people are experiencing a lack of this because of COVID. Right, one of the many impacts of COVID on people's lives is we just miss each other, and we're made for communion. 
And so it was almost like people heard this and went, yes, yeah. I'm just, where is this in my life, right? So we're just we hungry for connection. There was an article too, I think it was in the Atlantic that talked about that because of the COVID crisis, um, a number of categories of, it said friendship, but I think it's really more connection, hmm. have been erased because we're just living these lives of isolation. So I think people are just hungry to be together. Yeah, I haven't seen my barista in months, you know? Like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think that's spot on. So we want to. We said we were going to return to this topic. Uh, we, we thought we were going to do it last week, but we, uh, we felt led to kind of prepare for Lent. So we do want to return to it now. So we want to talk a little bit about some of the obstacles that hinder, I'm thinking especially priests, um, from being vulnerable, being uh, at the table with people. But I don't think it's going to be unique to priests by any means. And then we also want to give some, some things that we can do, you know, some concrete, practical things that we can do to actually begin to implement some things. Maybe, again, it's another Lenten idea. Who knows? Okay? So let me just set the stage again. So let me go back to that passage in 1 Thessalonians 2. And so we, we just did this with a set of priests last week huh, in an academy that we, uh, we spent time with guys on. And we gave that passage, you know, we were, just, we were eager to share not only the gospel, but ourselves. And I think for most priests, they, they, they hear Paul, they read Paul, they imagine Paul in a room. I mean, the church in Thessalonica is, I mean, if it's a hundred people, it's a lot of people. I don't think it's that big, right? And I think most of us hear that, and it's a pain point. Like, lucky you, Paul, forgetting that the guy got stoned and left for dead and beaten with rods and all that. The intimacy that he has with his communities is off the chart. And I think we read, I know I read Paul and his letters to these spiritual children that he has, and it just creates a longing. Like, it would be so great to know your people that way, because for most priests, they can't do that because most of us anyway, our parishes are just, they're too big. Right, we can't we can't know that many people, and we, let alone care for that many people. Tim Keller, right? You and I came across a, a study that he had cited one time. Keller's a uh, a Presbyterian minister out in New York who's just a, a really gifted preacher, and he had cited some study that was done on pastors, right. Catholic, Protestant, everybody. Right. And I think it said, you know, a pastor of whatever dom- denomination can reasonably care for something between what was it, a hundred and fifty to to 200 people. And even as you say that, I mean, that's a much smaller number than perhaps the parish that you and I came from, but even that's a pretty significant number of people. It's a, yeah, it's a significant for. number, but we had 12,000. Right, right. And so, you know, we were busy playing whack-a-mole and, you know, the principle is you just can't love what you don't know. And how many pastors or laymen and women who are working alongside them, as you were with me, how many of us can know that many people. And so you just get really easily frustrated about where we are in parish life. So Father, you just, I think it's just really helpful though, if we just acknowledge real quickly up front that our pastors, you know, that our priests don't have the capacity to change the structures. Like like only the bishops can do that. And and, and we're working right now with a set of bishops who are, who are trying to do just that, right? Yeah, that's spot on. So don't blame the priest. <laughs> I mean, he right. inherits a structure right. which, which we would, you know, just straight out say is broken. We think parish life is untenable the way it is. 
and uh, and we firmly believe God's calling us to look at new ways of being a parish in the 21st century so that the people can get cared for, the, right. the staff can be compensated and have the right number of people around them, and, and the priests can thrive. I mean, every, everybody wins, right? But we can change some things. Right. And, and so, so, Father, maybe it would be helpful here if you could somehow pull the curtain back um, and, and talk to us maybe especially about what's formation in seminary like? In other words, did your formation prepare you for this? Oh, yeah, or, hands or, or down, not? it was just off the chart. <laughs> Sorry for the sarcasm. So, you know, I, I want to be really careful here. I, I had a great experience in seminary. Um, I met some of the finest men I've ever lived with and some of the greatest brothers I have, um, both here when I was studying in Detroit, and then I was um, I was asked to study in Rome, and I lived with 120 guys who were, you know, for everything I thought I did well, there were 100 guys who did that and, like, umpteen other things mm-hmm. infinitely better. I mean, it was, really, it was a really humbling experience, quite frankly. So they were great guys. We had great priests that lived with us. And yet, if I'm honest, and I'm, I'm not trying to make a judgment on where seminaries are today, I'm, I've been out of seminary for 25 years, but as I look back, and as I talk to other priests, and we work mm-hmm. with other priests, and I talk to guys in seminaries around the country today, I think oftentimes our seminary experience, both explicitly and implicitly, it's almost like it discouraged vulnerability. So, so... um we're talking about being human. Yeah. It seems to me that being vulnerable and being human go hand in hand. And, and, You'd that, think so. But that word scares us. Oh, big time. Because if you look at the word vulnerable or vulnerability, it, it, it's you're opening yourself up to be wounded. Yes, the ability and that's to be a, hurt. Yeah, that's a scary place. That's a scary place to be. Absolutely. It, it's, it's not a weakness. I mean, that's really important, right? Vulnerability is not a weakness. In fact, we just came across this great quote, which um, which I found to be really striking, you know, to run from vulnerability is the vain attempt to be something that we're not, mm. right? Because to be human, I think it says Joseph Pieper, to be human is to be one giant need, right? I'm, 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 a, I'm a massively contingent, being. dependent being, right? Like I need air, food, sleep. I need a I, I am a giant need, and God provides for me, uh, and we provide for one another, too. So to run from vulnerability is to try to pretend that somehow you're God. Right, that I don't need anybody, I don't need anything, and I don't need the Lord. And unfortunately, this happens. I mean, so uh, this just comes to mind as you're saying that. Here's one of the obstacles to being vulnerable. We've been vulnerable with people before, and we got hurt. And it hasn't fared so well. Yeah, so, right. so we put the walls up, right? Like, right. that's not going to happen again. I don't want to get hurt again. But at a certain point, you come to a place in life, hopefully, where you realize, well, I'm either never going to be loved and to love, which means I'm probably going to have a miserable existence, mm-hmm. or I've got to make the effort to risk lowering the wall and let people into my life and be open to being hurt. Because, I mean, it, it is just that. It's risky. And it's not always reciprocated, right? Right. I, I, I'm thinking about um, when we were in a diocese recently, and we were we were talking about some of these things. You were you were laying this out for um, for the bishop and his team. And one auxiliary bishop said, "He said that um, this goes against everything 
I was trained for. Yeah. So he, he, yeah. So without getting into the details of his life, we were trying to encourage people to step into a place. Right. Cause, cause essentially, uh, you know, or an essential for getting healthy as an organization, as a team, as becoming a family is I've got to learn to trust others, to be vulnerable so that we can have good conflict. Right. right? So we can have commitment to results. And this guy's experience in seminary was one of being told never reveal anything to anybody. And so he's here and, 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 I don't know, he's been 30 years ordained. Right. So he's habituated himself, and, and he's not alone. Like, this is really common. He's habituated himself. Lots of us have habituated ourselves to never be vulnerable, to never let anybody in. And so this kind of talk is scary, right? And I, I know from my own experience in seminary, this is the implicit part. Okay. Like, we were never told this out loud. But implicitly, I think a lot of guys go through seminary with something like, I'm fearful of revealing who I really am or where I struggle. Because if I do, I'm probably out. So, you know, guys just kind of duck their heads and get through and get ordained. But, Mm. you know, even like spiritual direction, right? So every priest goes to spiritual direction. Every seminarian uh, has a spiritual director who's somebody that you can kind of reveal the deepest things to, because this is a person who's kind of like the sacrament of confession. He's bound to secrecy. But even that relationship, it's one-sided. Like, I'm revealing everything to my spiritual director, right? but he's not reciprocating it. He's not going, oh, well, let me tell you what's going on in my life, you know, so that doesn't happen. So so now imagine this. You go through this four or five, maybe longer years, more years, and you've kind of habituated yourself— to not being vulnerable. And now you're ordained and you're assigned to your first parish. And so you come in habituated to not being vulnerable. And especially if you're a younger priest, not always by any means, I want to be really careful here, but it's not uncommon. The young guy comes in and he can, he can feel wrongly that somehow he has to be the expert or, or even worse, that he that he is the expert on any and all things having to do with faith, right? I can remember for myself, that got shattered really quickly the first day I started hearing confessions of the parish where I was uh, first assigned to, and I realized there are some saints here. Like, there's people bringing stuff to confession that I wouldn't even think of bringing because I was still struggling with whatever I was struggling with. They're talking about, yeah, I had an unkind thought towards my towards my spouse, you know, or something like that. And I'm like, uh, I think you should be hearing my confession. Quite <laughs> frankly, you just can't, uh, you can't absolve me. So, um, yeah, I mean, there are, there are people farther down the road to sanctity in the parish than the priest. And I was thinking of St. Augustine's line, you know, it's so important to remember that I might be a shepherd for you, but with you, I'm a sheep. That's beautiful. You know? Right. You know, Father, um, you know this, and I can say this to my brother priests as well, that what you were just talking about, our experience in the pews can often be with someone like that, that this young, uh, beautiful new priest is, is, is preaching at us. How's that feel? Right. Um, 
you know, probably not great. (laughs) So it's not helpful, right? But but we appreciate where he is. But that's how oftentimes that can be experienced. But but um, you know why? Because I think our our fear is that if I'm vulnerable, I'm not talking about doing therapy from the pulpit. But if I'm vulnerable, I'm afraid I will push you away. But you know what? It the opposite happens, right? It's it's when you're vulnerable. I think that another person looks at you and you go, oh my gosh, like that is so attractive. Do you remember when we had Father Patrick and Father Ryan on podcast? Yeah, two priests from Cleveland. Beautiful, beautiful brothers in the Lord, still in contact with them, beautiful guys. The feedback that we got from that podcast was amazing. I think why it resonated with folks is because they were just being very honest and disclosing. And to be clear, when we're talking about being vulnerable, we're talking about always within a prudential judgment, right? Absolutely, but their sharing was so real and so honest. It just landed well, That's right? right? Yeah, and, and so to be clear, I, I can't agree, you know, 25 years into this now, I can't agree more with what you said that I have really come to learn that vulnerability does attract, it's right? Beautiful. I mean, it's like the people in the pews go, oh, you too? Right. You <laughs> like, just, like you get it. You like you get a, struggles. You get you get the reality of life as opposed to you sitting there on your pedestal, you know, telling me everything. You're instead you're walking with me and wrestling with the word of God with me if, if we're at mass or sitting there in the in a in an office or a conference room or a chapel if we're talking. It tells me really quick that you're approachable. Yeah, right? and Jesus was that in space. Amen. He was right. Amen, so, was. Yeah. so th- those are some of the obstacles. There's some other obstacles to being vulnerable, and we could we could talk about these odd infinitum probably. Yeah. But there's a couple others that come to so, mind. So you know, um, I don't care whether we're ordained or whether we're married or whether we're single. No matter what our vo- vocation is, if we're simply alive, it means there's some healing that needs to happen in our lives. So I think a lack of healing, or at least beginning that work of healing, can be a real obstacle to learning how to be real and honest and human. Yeah, so a little plug for the John Paul II uh, Center for Healing. So Dr. Bob Schutz and the great work that they do down there, we've talked about them before, but it's I think it's one of the encouraging signs that we see in the church right now, how many bishops, priests, laymen, and women are are waking up to... Uh, the great work that he's doing and they're doing down there, uh, both their books, their retreats, uh, their talks, their conferences, and and they're learning it's okay to be broken. Like God's not he's, repulsed by my brokenness. That's why he came. Yeah, any more than a physician is repulsed by us coming uh, with a with with hurts because the doctor yeah. presumes if you're coming to see me something's wrong, right. and so we don't have to run from that. We can uh, we can talk about that. So. Yeah, you're spot on. I think another obstacle, too, you know, we learn vulnerability, at least in its ideal setting, in our homes. Right. Uh, would that that was always the case. You know, I, I was uh, particularly, I think me and my siblings, we can't honor our parents enough for so many things, but one of the things I'll honor my dad uh, till my day, dying day is his own vulnerability, uh, just the sharing of his life. Um, in a way that was appropriate for a father to a son. And then as I got older, um, that was more like an older brother and a younger brother. Um, so I, I learned that. It was modeled right. for me. I saw that that's what a leader does. That's how authority leads. But unfortunately, that's not the norm. It's not in every family. And so again, if it wasn't in your family, uh, it might be an obstacle to you because this is something that can't so much be taught 
but caught. We, it's, it's like discipleship. That's right. Right? Um, I, I think there's a, I think, I mean, this is going to be a, a, a no-brainer comment here, but um, technology and the pace of life, the rapidity of with, with things come at us. Um, uh, Hard to be vulnerable in a text. Yeah. I mean, we don't have the a chance to The emoji doesn't quite cut it. No, and I don't think we have a, a, a real opportunity to, um, to be together behind screens. Right. Um, like you said, you can't hear tones in a text. Um, I, I just think technology is like one of the key hindrances. And, and I actually think we recovery. use technology to avoid vulnerability. I don't want to talk to you. That's why I'm texting you. <laughs> I actually don't want to engage. But I, I, I think you're right. But I also think we can get habituated to that. Yep, and and so true. like I even find myself going, gosh, I wonder if so-and-so is open to a call right now. Well, like, I wouldn't have even thought about that a set of years ago. I would just pick up the phone right. and call. And if they can't pick up, I'll get their voicemail. But that that's the thought that goes through my head. And so, then, and obviously, uh, covid has had a massive impact. Yeah, and on I think that's why we got the feedback on the right. episode a couple right. of weeks ago right. because uh, we're just longing and aching to be together again, right? You know, like it's it, even just the fact I can't see your face. Like you, you can't give a talk to people. I don't. You, you can't. It's hard to preach if I can't see your facial expression. Mm-hmm. Like, are you sitting there shooting darts at me, or are you smiling? Are you laughing? Are you crying? I I I can't see any of that. It's just so. Inhuman. I'm not advocating that we should be reckless. That's not my point at all. It's just the impact of what we're living we through right. it's having on us. And then maybe finally, so here's here's another challenge of, of the priesthood right now is, is just our identity. And what I mean by that is uh, to be, I remember uh, Father Francis Martin, he once said to me uh, and to all those that he was talking to, you know, a, an essential thing for being a man is to be generative. So like, I have to be life-giving. I find life by work. I find life by pouring into my children. If I'm a dad, I find life by hanging out with friends. As a priest, you're spiritually generative, right? Um, and so our identity is, you know, certainly it's son, you know, um, it's uh, shepherd. But I think for most of us, our identity, at least what we want to be, is spiritual fathers. You know, like I want, I remember saying to somebody once, you know, like, I, I esteem marriage to no end. I would, I would find it confining mm. personally. You know, so people look at priests and go, wow, I don't know how you do that. Mm-hmm. We look at married people and go, I don't know how, don't you, know how do you do that. that. Like, right. I want thousands of children. You mm-hmm. know, I just want to pour into more people than I have the capacity for in, in family life. You know, Paul, that's Paul's identity, right? Paul says to the church in Corinthians uh, or in Corinth, you know, even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, you do not have many fathers. It was I who became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That's a really important text, by the way, for people who think, you know, call no man your father. Uh, Jesus obviously has to be talking about something other than actually just using the word. Paul identifies himself as the father of the church in Corinth, right, by the preaching of the gospel. Um, so we, we long, I long, most of my brothers, we long to be spiritual fathers. We've, we're taught that's what we are. That's what you call me, right? And Father we, John. And we long, for we fathers. long for spiritual fathers. <laughs> right. Here's right? the problem. We're just not set up to be this. Right. Because and it's too big, right? You know, um, 
I'm listening to you talk and, and, you know, understanding your identity and, and the need to recover spiritual fatherhood. But we know so many priests, we, we've been working with uh, scores of priests over the last year and a half. And when we listen to them open up and share about their lives, I think they'd probably self-identify as like a CFO, a CEO, uh, a manager, an administrator, a fundraiser, a first responder, an HR director, you name the task, maintenance, whatever it is. Like, I often wonder, like, how many hats can your wee little head hold because you have so much on your plate and something central gets pushed aside. Yeah, and all those and things that's are that identity. important, but they're, they're, not, they're not the essence of what it means to be human. Right. Those are roles. Right. I want to be a dad. Who you are. You know, I want right. to be a spiritual father. So, so Father, what can, what can, what can change? Like, like, so we're talking about getting small and needing to be at the table with someone. Yeah, that's the bad news. Like, like, like where, where, do we, where do we start? Yeah, so let, let's talk about two tables maybe that we can we can be at. And the, uh, one of these will be in, uh, perhaps, well, maybe both of these are especially applicable to priests. But when we get to something practical that we can do, I think this is going to be practical for everybody, not just the ordained by any means. So, so what tables can we start with? I'd say two. The first table is our leadership teams. So there's a lot of talk in the church right now about, well, we've got to have a leadership team. And I don't know that everybody really understands what a leadership team is. I mean, a leadership team isn't just a smaller number of people that you like give orders to or something like that. Um, what, what's a leadership team? Pat Lencioni, who's a good brother, a good friend, uh, who's written so many great books on organizational health and who we talk to a lot about our work, um, who's on our board. huh? Mm-hmm. So in The Advantage, which is kind of the Bible, if you will, for organizational right. health, he, he makes some observations, and if you apply that to parish life, it'd be something like this. So a leadership team is, you know, maybe four to six people who they oversee, um, like, key areas, the, the large scope of key areas. So maybe it's the pastor, maybe it's a, a principal, maybe it's a business manager, it's some other folks. And their central role is to run the parish with the pastor, right? Th- th- these are people who who have... Um, they've they've gone through the hard work of learning to trust each other, being able to be vulnerable with each other, engage in healthy conflict. Right. There's minimal politics. They're able to go after uh, the best of answers, right? We only want what God wants. Nobody's got another agenda. We hold each other accountable. And so we're charged with, uh, with really moving the parish forward. And as a pastor— with my leadership team, like I would tell them, like, I'm depending on you. You are on my leadership team. Uh, I'm depending on you to help me run the parish, right? So this is not so much an honor. It's really more like a burden. In fact, I can think of two people uh, who I respect greatly, who I invited to be on a, a leadership team who said, I don't think I can do that. Like, I don't have, I don't have the kind of time and availability that you need in this role. So these these people help set the direction of the parish. They make sure the right staff is in place. And there's in, in every organization, there's going to be some people who want to be on this team who shouldn't. Right. Uh, and the pastor's got to make the call, right? So um, it, as, as, as a pastor with a leadership team, by all means, I'm leading it, right? But I need to see myself there, not so much as a CEO, right. but a spiritual father, right? right? I'm there to, to lead it, but also to help 
heal it, to, to, to be authentically human with the people around us. And, and I think we've had enough experience of being as a team, because oftentimes when we travel, we're out working with dioceses, we go as an entire team. And, and maybe you could just share something about our team and our core values. And then maybe we can just make a couple of comments about how it's actually pretty humbling because, man, we know who we are and we ain't much. But the response we get from people when we're with them and after we leave, what they say about watching us. Right. So what are our core values? Yeah, so one of our core values uh, that we settled on, what, almost two years ago now, was um, being authentically human. And and so we, w- we would define that value as um, a promise to each other to, to, to live a balanced life and to be ready for the mission. Um, and, and that looks, for us, in our context, that looks like we give each other permission to be real. Gosh, that is so huge, Boy, right? right. Yeah. It, it's okay not to be okay yeah. if you're hanging out with us because we're not all okay. Yep. I'm broken, <laughs> you're broken, time. and everybody That's knows right. it. And so there you go. It, right? So that permission to be real. And then the other way that gets um, actuated is um, a willingness to help and to ask for help and to recognize, like, it's just not all on you. Like, this is us, right? Which leads me to this next uh, this, this next piece. So we, we are committed to having a unified mind and heart. So when we're asking for help, it's because there's unity among us. It's not falling just on one person. And then there's this ongoing, uh, constant concern for our collective well-being. And that means the whole person, our heart, our mind, our body, and I'm our soul. I'm always asking everybody, right. how are we doing? How are you doing personally? How are we doing as a team? That's right. And, and, and we are at a place where we're able to go, well, not so well right now. And then we can get into it. Or even if, right, exactly. Or even if we're trying to establish like really healthy habits, are you working out? How are you right. doing with that? Right. right. Are you getting enough sleep? I, I mean, all those simple things. I today. A bag of biscotti's people is what it was like. They were really good. They were oh chocolate with glaze. They were awesome. Thank I thought I was going to have to peel them off the ceiling today as we're doing this. And then the last one was um, making like this. We do this, and I think this is what people see when we're out uh, um, on mission. We make intentional time to enjoy each other's company, and you can't feign that. Either you love the people you're with, or you don't. Yeah, and we're gonna. That's gonna lead into the practical application here in a second, yeah. right? We, we really do. We, we build into our weeks. We we made a point when we started doing this mission uh, that we were gonna have a meal to at least one meal together every week, lunch and dinner. We alternate back and forth so that we can just we waste time together. Waste time. We just we just hang out, right? So we were just on an offsite a couple of weeks ago. Right. We, this, we were at an undisclosed bunker location. We had a fabulous time and. Uh, I think we touched on this last week. The, we had great prayer and mass every day, obviously. Um, we d- did some really good work. We had some great play. We played some wonderful golf courses. We had a lot of food, and we laughed so often that we cried, right? And um, we, we, I think one of the things that's uh, so much fun about the work that we do together is we, we really love each other. Mm-hmm. And we're small enough that we can say that and mean it because we know each other, right? Like you guys all know I struggle with depression. Right. And uh, and I know what you all struggle with. And so we can just go, hey, how you doing today, Mary? No, yeah. I'm all right. Yeah, there's no hiding no, on not. this team. What's up? No, I'm fine. Right. No, you're not fine. What's up? Right. And we, we just call each other on that in charity and it creates space to be able to talk into things because how we are is more important than what we're doing. Right, that's the beauty of uh, of our work together. 
So, so we go someplace and we, we just are who we are and who we are as a motley crew to be sure. But, um, it's, it's really common when we leave, we're talking to people afterwards and unsolicited, they'll say things like, we had a guy say to us, you know, we watched you the whole night just having dinner together. Yeah, we happened to be in the same restaurant that night. And so there was a, a table of folks over in the corner, yep. uh, kind of said, you know, hey, when we got to the restaurant, we're having our meal. They walk over to our table and they say that. And we had no idea they were like, you know. Watching. Yeah, watching us. And we, you know, we, we take time when we eat. So we, we had a lot of laughter. We had some great food. And I think his comment was, you know, we can't fathom being with each other the way you guys are. <laughs> and, and, and they were jealous, right? Like, a, and, and you want to provoke jealousy. Yeah, like, you can have this. It's not because we're lucky. It's because we're intentional about doing this. That's the point of this whole right. thing. If we're intentional about wasting time with each other, with Jesus at the center, right. amazing things happen. You know, or, or they might watch us pray over each other before you get up and give a talk or I get up and give a talk. And it just looks normal and people see it and they're attracted to it. I remember sharing with uh, one bishop how we approached doing our work. And he, he said to me after he heard it, you know, just the idea of being at the table with them as opposed to facilitating. Right. And he said, oh, gosh, that just so resonates with me. That's so human. Like, that's so much what I want. Because the norm for so many of us mm -hmm. is it's business. And there's lots of things that we have to do to be sure. But if we can do it in a way that's human, it's extraordinary. Right. That difference is, is, is glaring. So right? let's, let's skip the second table. Let's just talk about what we can do. How about a concrete application for us, whether it's priests or families, what can we do with this? Mary? Yeah, so I, I think the I think the simplest uh, place to go to look for something practical to do is to go to the Word of God, and um, and it's the example of Jesus as he's just having meals with people, like he's wasting time with people, and so we we often think of you know food as a way to kind of like refuel our bodies, but that's not how Jesus saw meals, like he wasted. Um, I don't know, two, three hours. Yeah, I, I often reflect like it, it is, it's not insignificant that God became a man at a time and in a culture when it took something like three hours to eat a meal. I'm, you know, I, I mentioned I was fortunate to live in Italy. I lived there for four years. And when I first got there, it was just culture shock. You know, I mm -hmm. was used to seeing food as fuel. And uh, the Italians don't live that way. You know, and so we used to take pilgrimages back to Italy all the time, and we would always subtitle the uh, the pilgrimage "Learning How to Live." And there's something about it; it's actually painful to acquire this new habit. And then by the time you you leave, I mean, it wasn't un uncommon for me and uh, and some friends of mine. We'd go out at like you know seven thirty at night, start eating at eight. We'd be done at midnight, and all we do is talk. Like, why would you? Why would you go home and watch something? When, right. when the company I'm with is better than whatever I'm going to watch That's on TV right. that I'm actually not a part of. You're making memories together. You're spending time with one another. And you, and you, you speak about your meals often with, the brother priest, with your brother priest that you're still in relationship with now and how much that meant. There's some of the best memories I have in my life. Well, like, yeah. like so many memories in our lives are great meals. You know, the laughter that happens and just the friendship and the right. fellowship that happens— you and I came across a, a quote from a, a phenomenal book 
that we're reading. It's a commentary on the Gospel of Mark, um, simply entitled The Memoirs of St. Right. Peter, right? And it was talking about that passage where um, Jesus is in, he's in the house after a healing, and uh, the Pharisees make the accusation because he's sitting there with the tax collectors. This is after the call of Matthew. And the, the Pharisees say, why is he eating at table with tax collectors and right. prostitutes and sinners, right? Right. You know, so, so uh, the author goes on to say something like, he said, um, like Jesus likens himself to, to a physician who's, whose method of healing, I love this, is spending time with people. Yeah, just let that soak in for a second. His method of healing is spending time with people. That's, that's nothing short of remarkable. And uh, he goes on to say that um, he, he has accomplished many healings instantaneously and miraculously. And he says, these healings, as we have seen, also stand for spiritual healing. So here's, here, here's what we take away from that. So the author is clearly saying that this was Jesus's ordinary means for spiritual healing. Yeah, that's extraordinary. It was befriending people. It was talking with them. It was teaching them. It was being with them. It was to be human Yeah, th- 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 with this them. is so huge, right? I mean, it looks like so obvious, and yet it's so glaringly different from how many of us live our lives. It, this is Jesus is teaching us how to live an authentically human life. He's the only real man who ever walked the earth. Mm-hmm. The rest of us are pale, pale, pale shadows, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and you know, so we, we want to encourage people. Uh, here's the practical application: whether you're uh, a pastor or a priest, or you're a mom or a dad, or you're a single person, make a priority in the season of Lent to waste time with people you enjoy. You know, like, fast from seeing food as fuel and feast on company, especially in these days, right? In a way that you can do it, that's safe and all that, by all means, but um, do it, and, and at a certain point, you know, don't just be together, but make an effort to, uh, when you can sense the Spirit moving, just ever so gently but very intentionally steering the conversation in a certain direction. So we have a, a good friend, he's a member of our board, great brother, and we've seen him do this in a way that's just so doggone attractive. And, you know, it could be a gathering of six people, it could be a gathering or of a hundred. We've seen him we've do both. We've seen that. And in the middle of the meal, like at a certain point, you'll just see him and he'll say... There's a shift. Yeah, he'll look at someone and go, hey, Billy, what's the Lord doing in your life right now? And, right. and that was the cue, I mean, he was the host of the gathering, that was the cue that we are now moving into another... A whole other realm level. of conversation. That's right. It, it gets was, real really quick. It was so natural, and it was so attractive. I think everybody ran home. We were down at his house mm-hmm. and uh, said, I got to find a way to do that, because it, it just looked so good, and, and it was so rich, you know? And so, uh, how you doing? What's the Lord doing in your life? You know, uh, how can I pray for you? Those kinds of questions, right? And that's something, I think, in the season of Lent. If, if we could do this once a week during this season— Please, God, we would emerge at Easter a little bit more A little alive. more human. Yeah. So, you know, we, we, let's close with this, huh? Uh, we, we push uh, all the time uh, N.T. Wright's book, uh, Paul, A Biography, which I, I personally just think is an extraordinary book. And at the end of that book, he talks about, like, how did this work? Like, how is it that this man, who wrote in the, in the scheme of things so few pages— 
how is it that he had such a massive impact, you know, aside from grace and the power of the Holy Spirit and all that? And he talks about two things in a special way. One is that with all these communities that Paul founded, uh, contrary to how people often think, he wasn't telling them what to think. He was trying to teach people how to think. But the, the other point, which is what flows from what our conversation is right now, Paul was modeling for them a, an entirely different way of being human. And, you know, as we were thinking about this topic uh, today, and as we as we break this open for our brother priests and bishops in a special way, and as we see what's going on in the world, as we hear from people, this is one of the greatest needs right now. We, we need to learn and then to model for people how to be human. Right. Amen. So that's the challenge right now. That's what the Lord's asking us to do, to watch him, to learn from the Master, and then as we watch him do it, then to go do it ourselves. And that master is with us each and every day and each and every moment of every day. And he wants to shine through broken people like me and like you uh, so that the glory will belong to him and to him alone. So do not be afraid. God is with you. And you were born for this.